Welcome back to the Coach and Kernan Podcast Network. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined by the stars of our show, A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. We have Mark Wiley, former pitching coordinator, longtime baseball man with the Colorado Rockies and current scout. Will George with the same organization, the Rockies. We're on episode 80 here with Coach and Kernan, but it's the ninth installment of the Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching. And we have a unique guest today, a special guest, uh, part of our normal show, so the audience is going to know who he is, uh, Sal Marinello. Uh, but first, Mark and Will, welcome back to your show. And then, Mark, I'll let you introduce Sal when you're ready. Yeah, great, great. Um, we're so excited to have Sal. You know, we're changing pace a little bit. We're going to get some uh, strength and conditioning uh, ideas from Sal. And, and you know, he has vast experience. He's, he's the head coach of athletic development coaching in Melbourne, New Jersey at this time. Uh, he's had 35 years of, ex- of experience as a head strength and conditioning coach. He's unparalleled success at the high school level, at strength and conditioning coach for multiple sports for both boys and girls. Uh, the, he's, he's been involved with state championships in football, uh, boys and girls basketball, lacrosse and lacrosse and wrestling and swimming. Also worked in college with figure skating, fencing, women's gymnastics, and tennis. You can tell where this is going. Uh, he's helped produce all-county, all-conference, all-state, and all-American players. At Chatham University, he was the strength coach, strength and conditioning coach, and the assistant uh, head football coach. He's coached at Division One, Two, II, and Three college programs. He's been very involved in youth sports coaching. He's had over 40,000 private coaching sessions. Uh, he consults now with high school coach clubs, coaches, uh, personal trainers across the country. Uh, he's He has his own podcast on this network, which is called Hot Corner with, with Coach Sal. Uh, he's a contributor to other shows on the network like he is today with us. He's a regular contributor on Steve uh, Zambin's nor, uh national broadcast on Yahoo's Morning Talk Show, appeared on a variety of ESPN programs as an expert in field and of sports performance, has been published in the New York Post. He has certificates in the National Strength and Conditioning Association, the USA Weightlifting, NSCA Certificate Strength and Conditioning Specialist, Certified Personal Trainer, UAS certified club coach. So, you know, now we'll get into some questions for you, Sal. We're really excited to have you. You've got uh, some, an unbelievable background. Uh, it's nice to have somebody that's been doing it as long as you have. Well, thanks. And uh, I'd like to think, you know, it was an old joke on the old odd couple TV show. Um, I'd like to think I'm, I'm also a little bit of a success, not just an old guy still doing what I've always done. So um, it, it's kind of scary when you when you think about, uh, as we spoke about, Mark, you know, how long I've been doing this. And, and you look back and you don't realize all the, the things you've been able to do. So I've been lucky and, you know, I still have a lot to do yet. I feel like there's a lot of unfinished business. Well, you know, you put yourself out there on a lot of platforms and, uh, you know, your messages are well heard. And, you know, you'll be surprised when you do end up retiring You'll have people come back and tell you, you know, I learned this from you. I did that. I started my own program. Um, your coaching philosophy is what I built on. You'll hear all those things. And, 
at this time, you won't even realize they're happening. Yeah, and you know what's great? Because I've coached in so many different schools because I'm not a teacher and I've been fortunate enough to be an adjunct for the last, you know, 25 plus years, you know, I run into guys all the time and and some women now too that um, give me that same message. And it's great. You know, I've had the luck, uh, the good fortune to influence some people to get into the field, um, to whether it was coaching, whether it was to get into the strength and conditioning field. And, you know, being a sport coach, in addition to being um, the strength and conditioning coach, gives you an added opportunity to really know kids better. And I think, um, you know, that experience made me a great, a much better parent because I never lost touch with what kids in school were doing. So when my boys, I have three boys, when my boys got into school, I felt like I had a really good idea for what was going on in high schools. And and I was able to coach in my local high school when my older boy was there and I was coached at the school my, my twins went to. So, you know, that has been a great uh, experience for me. And, and my sons will tell you they had a good time too. And I think they mean it. That's great. The, uh, you know, as a pitching coach, I know I, uh, I leaned heavily on the strength and conditioning and the trainers for our teams because often your relationships are a little bit different than 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 the coach of, of the position. You know, you you find out sometimes more personal stuff about a guy that it might take us a lot more digging to get um, because you're there watching him do reps, you're pushing him. You know, there's time between exercises where you might be talking to the guy. And I used to get some really good information from you guys. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's um it's one of those things that you you're right. You spend time differently, uh, not as a position coach where you're with a group of even in a sport like lacrosse, which which you could have a smaller group or basketball for sure, where you're with a smaller group. Still, what I do, even if you have you know ten or twelve people in a weight room, you're still or on the field, you're still individually coaching them a lot more than than in a sport coach. So it's it's been great. Both have made me better. You know, the sport coach side of things has made me better as a, a, as a, as a strength coach and vice versa. Um, so that, that's been a great experience for me. You know, that leads me to, to, to wonder, where do you start with, let's say, because our show's more about pitching than anything else, where would you start with a young pitcher with his strength and conditioning? Um, well, what I look at, I don't look at athletes when they come to me uh, privately in my business, or even if I'm at the high school level, you know, one of the um, the reasons I've been able to be successful in different sports is because I try to s- separate the uh, the individual from the sport they play. Because especially at the younger levels, you could get a more mature athlete who's better at certain things simply because they're higher up on the maturity scale. So I've, I've been able to do a pretty good job of objectively viewing these athletes and look at what they're doing physically. So I, I really wouldn't care about what position they played, Mark, because there are certain things I look at, and over the last especially 15 years, there are certain things I see now day in and day out from a deficit standpoint, whether it's range of motion at the ankle, range of motion in the shoulder, that I know we're going to be working on fundamental movements it doesn't matter if they're a pitcher if they're a point guard if they're an attackman in lacrosse uh if they're a a center on the football field or if they're a quarterback 
because you know I'm I'm working with what I call developing athletes and I've changed the language. I don't call it strength and conditioning anymore because that has a football connotation uh, and it has a weight room connotation. I like to call it athletic development because that's actually what I'm doing and what you're doing. We're developing athletes. So I look at it as a broad-based spectrum of fundamental movements that we're making sure they're good at before we can do those next things up the ladder that they need to do. Yeah, it sounds like and it's based on you know, the maturity level of a guy. Um, I know our guest last week, Mike Paul, he made a comment that, you know, when he was working with young pitchers, he said he used to, you know, determine some some of the things they did by whether they could grow up, whether they already were shaving or not. Yeah. Which I thought was really kind of funny, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, we we always say, too, look at their hair on their, on their lower legs. You could have – you know, if you have an eighth grader and they're a ninth grader and they have uh, hair on their lower legs already, that's a kind of an indication of where they are versus the kid that's still got the, you know, the kind of rounder face and, not, you know, doesn't have those same attributes. You, you, can, you can treat them completely different and you view them completely differently. Yeah, it makes okay. all the sense in the world. It makes all the sense in the world. Um, how, you know... We all have out to deal with this. With players, you know, they want immediate results when they're trying something new. Um, how do you deal with that with players? Well, I mean, I could give I, – I wouldn't say immediate, but I could see pretty short-term results. Now, it's not necessarily what they view as a result or the result that the athlete or the parent wants, but – you know, if you're if you're starting from a sound fundamental base of where we're talking about improving fundamental movement skills in a very short period of time with a young athlete that has no other, you know, they're not coming off some kind of serious injury, in a matter of two to three weeks, you could start to see some pretty significant differences. So, you know, it might not be what the what the person, what the individual or the parent wants. Because we talked about this too, um, you know, you can't tell a kid he's going to be throwing mid nineties, or just like I can't tell a kid he's going to be running a four four in the forty. But we could do things that are going to uh, push forward their development. So that's the uh, I look at it as my result, not what they have as their uh, preconceived notion of a result. Will go ahead. You had something you wanted to throw in? Oh no, it was uh, just you know. Sal's uh, philosophy on athletic movement and athletic training, I think, has made me a little bit better scout in, in, in evaluating players and really honing in on that. And, you know, Mark and I talk a lot about that in pitchers, that guys who are more athletic have a good chance to connect their deliveries. And when they're connected, they're going to pitch better and they're going to stay healthier. And... um that has certainly, uh, I think, probably made me a little bit better scout as I focused more on that stuff just since we started doing our podcasts. Well, that's now, awesome. I, got, I got a question for you, kind of link what Mark said and Will said. You, you spoke on our, our podcast, uh, The Hot Corner, last week about three-dimensional movements, sagittal, frontal, and transverse. And I, don't, I don't mean to talk nerdy to you so early in the morning, but could, could you get uh, – could you get into that a little bit as we kind of go into the movements of pitchers and athletes, those three, three dimensions? Absolutely. So I, I very rarely veer into the jargon, you know, technical jargon area. But, 
you need to you need to realize and recognize we do move in three planes. So the sagittal plane is when you're sprinting forward or you're backpedaling. The frontal plane is when you're shuffling laterally, right? And the transverse plane is when you rotate. So we can stay in the frontal plane and we'll stay in the la in the uh, sagittal plane. You know, in the frontal plane, if you're a basketball player, you're going to shuffle a lot more. You know. Baseball players maybe don't do that as much. Transverse plane is a transitional step in that you step, you rotate, and then you're running straight or you're going to shuffle. So you don't stand, you don't stay in the transverse plane. However, that's the plane where you get the most potential for injury, in my opinion. And when you realize what a lot of this training we see is addressing, it's addressing basically the frontal plane. Think about Anybody that's putting athletes in a, in a leg extension or a leg curl machine or a leg press machine, you're working in one plane and you're producing movement with one group of muscles that never act alone to produce movement when you're in the real world. So that's why, you know, uh, if parents are listening or if other coaches are listening, if you're putting athletes in selectorized equipment, that's anything, like I said, leg extension, leg curl you're doing them a big disservice because you're only training in one plane and we don't move in one plane ever exclusively. We're moving, and in sports, we're moving in multiple planes. Think of a center fielder who is reacting to a ball being hit hard and at them. Sometimes they step forward, they make a misjudge, and then they have to get on a diagonal where they're running, their hips are in one direction, their shoulders are turned, and... That's the kind of position that puts the body in jeopardy. Um, so that's the kind of training you need to be in. You need to. You, that's why you can't do all this stuff in the weight room. Most of these videos you see of these major league baseball players, which, in my opinion, is video bragging about what they're doing, is just nonsense. A single plane movement that's hurting them, not helping them. How does that apply to a pitcher's windup? Well, yeah, think about all that you're, you're doing all those things at once. Some things are internally rotating. Some things are externally rotating. Some things are in the sagittal plane and some things are in the transverse plane. So all of that is happening at once. So if you're spending a lot of time in single plane movements in selectorized equipment, especially you're you're killing yourself. I remember years ago seeing uh, not that, that not that long ago. I believe it was Severino from the Yankees. He was on some shoulder rehab. They had him doing like behind the head pull downs and other such things that are just the worst thing in the world you could be doing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's amazing. Um, I love the things you're saying because that, you know, when your body, when your body's strong in the right ways and the flexibility is right, it's a lot easier to find your own rhythm and timing. And for me, you know, it's all about rhythm and timing for a pitcher you know, to be able to command the ball and take advantage of, of what he sees with a hitter. And, you know, there's so much emphasis put on uh, certain aspects of strength uh, over the mobility that's necessary to, to make the movement. Well, and you know what they're doing, Mark, is, is they're training movement. I'm sorry, they're training muscles, not movements. And my approach, you know, and this was a great line from, uh, you know, Vern Gambetta, who I heard it from. I don't know if he he coined the phrase, but he's like, we train movements, not muscles. 
So that that really is a, a is a every man's way of saying we're training the nervous system because the nervous system is the one is what is in control here. The muscles are just carrying out the message. Uh, the the nervous system is what drives everything. So back to our uh, weight room example, if you're training these muscles in isolation, you're breaking the connection between the nervous system and the muscles that are actually playing, uh, uh, carrying out the actions. So that's why you have these herky-jerky movements. And, and the same thing, you can watch people run. I watch baseball players run constantly, how they run, and they run terribly uh, because they train, uh, they're training their body as a collection of parts instead of as a, a unified system that has to work together. And that's certainly going to th- screw up your timing if you're training things individually. So, so how do you feel about the phrase muscle memory then? Yeah, there is, there's no such thing as muscle memory because the, the muscle, again, is the uh, – it's almost – I don't want to say it's mindless in what it does, but it, it, it needs to be able to respond, but you have to train it to respond, but the nervous system is still in control. If there was such a thing as muscle memory, spinal cord patients would be able to move after their spine was impacted because the muscles would have memory, but they don't. The muscles need the nervous system. I love it. Well, Will, go ahead. You had something you wanted to add. Yeah, well, I, you know, on that, I would say movement memory is is probably what we, we, we should probably be teaching our pitchers and hitters and position players. But, you know, so many times, Sal, as I've listened to you since we started doing these and when we look at the game of baseball and when Mark and I signed and you just talked about guys in the weight room that are throwing around so much weight and um, yeah, they're stronger, but look at the number of disabled list days that, that, that now are, are in baseball that are absolutely ridiculous because the players are so bound up and tight and they've lost all their flexible movements as opposed to when Mark and I signed Pitchers, they told us not to lift weights at all, but we stayed so much healthier and threw more innings, more appearances than than guys do now that that by by tenfold, and spent less days on disabled lists. And I I I get it. We're we're all old, but you know when some things work, why not go back to looking at that again and 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 trying to recreate that. And I know you've talked a lot about, you know, that if you had the opportunity that you, 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 you could make a good impact with that. Yeah. I mean, you would, you would remove a lot of the impediments, which are the weight room. And I talked to Mark about this last night, that we have a combination of things that you, you can kind of blame for the situation we're in, but until we change things, you're not going to know. So, you know, you have to, we, I don't think we're ever going to put the genie back in the bottle and have kids not play baseball 10 months of the year or all year round in some cases, but you can change how the training is done. And that's going to take some, you know, uh, commitment by people at the high levels and some athletes maybe too, because I think the problem too is guys, is we have guys breaking down in their late twenties and early thirties, maybe even mid twenties from stuff they've done since they were 13, 14, 15, 16. So, you know, it's kind of like we have to, we have an emergency, not to be like a panic monger, but we have an emergency at both levels. The immediate 
the immediate measure should be let's get these pros out of the weight room and get back to training him in movements. And hopefully we could get that to translate so that the guys and girls at the lower levels can, can benefit from that as well. You know, Sal, uh, I know uh, probably been 10, 10 or 15 years, but I know a lot of players started doing Pilates and yoga and got out of the weight room and they got healthier and, they uh, a lot of pitchers felt much more flexible and that their bodies were easier to stay connected. Um, are you a proponent of those things as well? Yeah, I think those are things that are done uh, that have an appropriate place. And I think the other benefit of that is it's addition by subtraction. You know, a lot of what Tom Brady does is because they've taken he's taken himself out of that meathead mentality of the weight room. So that alone is going to be a benefit to him. So I agree that, you know, the Pilates and, and yoga can help, but the, again, they're not panaceas either. The, the, the key to all of athletic training or even training in life. I just had this conversation with my last client who was a high school athlete, competitive guy played basketball until he was in his fifties um, that we need to continue to train those attributes that you need to encounter in everyday life. When you slip, when you slip and fall or slip, you try to be able to move quickly so you don't fall. Those are the things we need to do, regardless of whether you're an athlete or whether you're a regular person. And those are not the things we're doing. So the speed is that's a long-winded way of me saying the speed of how you train is as important as what you're doing. And in a lot of ways, if the speed can't be replicated or come close to in training, then you probably shouldn't be doing it because it, you want that specificity in both movement and speed to approach what it is in your competition. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're obviously big into the old school, uh, having a lot of reps, but reps done properly. And, uh, I can tell you that, you know, as an older guy, um, I have a trainer that works me out because I know the value of my flexibility and strength that I don't want to lose. And uh, it's amazing. It's amazing when you attack it with, a, with not the strength mentality, but just maintaining some strength, maybe building some, but having the flexibility and letting your body work much better with a better range of motion in a stronger position, especially as you get older. So, you know, if I was a player doing the workouts I do now, I would have been a better player. I will tell you that right now, just because I would be stronger and my reps, I'd even have more benefit with my reps that I was doing. Mark, what are some of the things you're doing right now? Um, lots of, uh, you know, I do whole body. I usually do, the upper body, lower body. Uh, he has me do unbelievable amount of different types of stuff. I never get stagnant on what I do. His next, his name's Nick Cabrico, and uh, he's an unbelievable trainer, uh, particularly you know for somebody in my my situation. I like the fact that I don't do the same thing all the time. I may be attacking the same areas but I've attacked in a different way. So it keeps it fresh and it keeps my flexibility. Nice. Um, how about, you know, we talked about, you know, 
adjustments is a, is a part of a player's world as well as coaches. Can you give some examples of adjustments you made and the reasons it was necessary? Yeah, I mean, you know, working with individuals, it's a lot easier to assess your um, client and what you need to do because it's one person. In a team setting, it's much more difficult. But you can kind of use both uh, tools or both both views as a tool to help each other. But one of the biggest things is, again, the realization that lifting heavier weights doesn't make you a better athlete or doesn't make you perform better on the field. That And, and weightlifting itself can be a component of your training, but it's not a major component. Um, and, you know, doing things, and again, it was in a, in a different sports setting, but we were able to eliminate the typical soft tissue injuries that we the prior regime was experiencing at the college level at three at three or four different places by eliminating long distance running as a means to improve your uh, cardiovascular system and by eliminating the heavy weight and basically move, removing most of the traditional lifts out of the program and including some more non-traditional lifts. So it's been a constant evolution um, from the big picture standpoint. And then individually, Mark, it's all dependent on seeing, uh, for instance, I have a, a, a player who's trying to hook on with the NFL, and now he's at uh, the XFL, and he's doing very well in their tryout system, and hopefully will get drafted. He was a kid that played high-level college football, went to two outstanding colleges, played wide receiver, never was going to be a 4-3 guy. But he's six foot four and is built like – you know, uh, a statue and he, ha he has great athletic ability. So rather than continue to try to get him to chase that 4-4, we've worked on the things that he already does well, which is he's got great feet. He comes out of his break faster. So while he might not on the clocks running straight ahead be great, he's faster because he's more efficient with his movement. And, you know, that's a big adjustment to get your athletes to see, well, let me be better at what I'm good at to begin with instead of wasting time trying to improve something that's never going to get better. We had that same discussion about, you know, throwing 98 miles an hour before you know how to be a pitcher. So that's the kind of evolution and adjustments I make with, with both teams and with individuals. Like So the old adage of, I mean, we obviously want to work on our weaknesses, but the old adage of pick a weakness, get better at it. You're locked in on that particular guy of you identified something he was good at and you, I guess, accented it a little bit more. Right. And again, it's like take, I've had this happen a hundred times. You have a kid that's super quick, super athletic, and they want to bulk him up. And what's going to happen is he's never going to be as big as the big, the kid who's big naturally. And what you're going to do is make him slower. So he can't use his attribute that would allow him to contend with the guy who's bigger. So then he's worse in both cases because now he's not as big as the big guy and he's not as fast or fast enough to beat the big guy. And that happens all the time. And I, you, you try to get people to understand that and sometimes they don't want to hear it. That makes sense. It actually happened to me as a professional athlete where I was asked to, to bulk up and my, my speed was my strength and I noticed it started slowing me down a little bit and I immediately went away from it uh, because that was what got me signed was my, my legs. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. You know, many, many years ago, one of my best friends was, uh, uh, he got drafted in the NFL and he, he, uh, 
he he pulled a hamstring, so he yeah you know they had to let him go late in camp, and then uh, then he several teams called him up, and he was six foot five hurdler. Uh, had good speed, but not blinding speed. Sounds a lot like the guy you were training. Yep. And uh, teams called him up and said, can you put on weight and become a tight end? You know, and he said, you know, <laughs> I don't think I don't think I want to do that. Well, and then, you know, they are doing that because that's the that's the 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 uh, uh, evolution of the game. But not every kid, because there are certain, you know, position can just put weight on and have it be efficient, efficient weight. You know, if right. that were to happen to the kid I work with, it, he's just not built. He's never going to get down in a three point stance to be able to block, you know, so you, you just can't do that with certain players. And, and it, it's, it's not just a magic potion that you snap your fingers and like, Oh, sure. Let's put 30 pounds on him. It just doesn't happen like that. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you made, you made this comment to me the other day. I thought it was really good. It was, uh, uh, you know, you've said the best athletic body position can be disrupted by chasing velocity. Can you explain that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think you hear about this all the time with the different programs to try to get you to throw faster, uh, players to throw faster, when, you know, that is not necessarily possible. Like you can't, it it doesn't happen in other sports. I, at least I don't see it. Um, I see in basketball, kids want to dunk but they're not necessarily, you know, chasing a number, but there's just some kids who can't dunk. I was just talking to a colleague this morning who does a lot of basketball training. And we had the discussion about a kid can't, if a kid come in, comes in and said they want to run a four, four, that's, you know, your job is to try to get them to understand that that's not necessarily possible. You know, again, watch the NFL combine. Not every player is running a four, four, some very good skill kit, skill position players don't run that. So by by putting that as the goal, you're missing steps in between, in my opinion, especially in baseball, that you're going to wind up, A, not getting there, B, burning out or getting hurt. So that th- those, those uh, unrealistic goals, or you're putting a goal that's way too far down the line uh, at the front of the line. Um, I, you know, I, I, Watching the World Series, I think John Smoltz has done a really good job on pitchers' deliveries when they stay in them. The difference of uh, not so much maximizing velocity, but talking about the importance of staying behind the ball. When we watched the kid the other night when they threw the no hitter, the kid that started how when he was uh, when he was staying closed and behind the ball, how the ball had carry and finish and the hitters just did not see the ball well, as opposed to a guy who might be throwing five miles per hour harder, and but he's flying open and the pitch is flat through the zone and guys are getting hit. And, you know, that's the, that's what we have to teach, not chasing the velocity, but the result of quality pitches. Well, and you know, I use music a lot in my analogies because I think there's a huge carryover. And I think um, whether it's a band or whether it's an individual's technique, there's a lot of similarities between sport and music. And, you know, the my father is a, a was a classically is a classically trained uh, jazz drummer. And we talk about this all the time um, as a, as compared to sport. You have to learn the fundamentals of your instrument before you can 
progress up the up the ladder to play the more difficult pieces. Uh, you can't just come in and say you're going to play a Buddy Rich drum solo when you're a, a neophyte drummer. So for the person to come in and say they want to throw 95 when they're throwing from a little league distance or junior league distance and they haven't even gotten to the big diamond, whatever that progression is, it's, it's insane. But we accept it. We accept it in sports. We watch these guys squatting 600 pounds and, and think we're going to just, that's the goal. And it's just, it's off. If we're, we're, we've, we've taken our eye off of what's important here. And we, we've thought, we think because kid could do it in a sport that my kid could do it. And yeah. it's not it's, the case. It's like quick fix, instant gratification of what you want done. And, uh, you know, if, if things were easy and anybody would be able to do them. So it does take a lot of hard work and, you know, allow it to happen through hard work and dedication and creating muscle movement properly. And what we have here is it's a lot of confirmation bias. And by that, I mean, you justify the program because of the person who uses it when you have no real proof that the person that, that, that that's what's responsible for the person's success. So if you had a phenomenal athlete, they're probably going to be good at most of these tests or most and be able to get through most of these programs and still perform well. That certainly doesn't mean that that program is good. It, it, it's just that they're using that as the as the reason for it to be good. That happens all the time in these in these situations. Yeah, you probably already answered this, but are there any standards uh in terms of performance and uh, strength standards in, in terms of performance or injury prevention, particularly in, in elite baseball players? Well, I have a couple of different evaluation uh, methods or, or battery of tests, basically, that I can use. And what they what you what you're just looking for, as far as what I'm concerned, I, and I don't I don't ever look at a, at a distance or a height or a time or weight lifted as, um, as a reason for thinking someone's going to be successful or not going to have success. Um, but with some of these evaluation methods, and I've talked about it on the other shows, I look at range of motion in the shoulders and the ankles, and I look at imbalances in the body. And there's a, a couple of programs I use, again, that I look at how they move, and we can make some uh, evaluation about where certain issues are. And, and usually you, you pick up problems because they either have an imbalance or they have a range of motion issue. So to turn it around on you, Mark, I'd say, yeah, range of motion and an imbalance from side to side are the two things that you should look at. I have a, a friend of mine used to coach at one of the biggest high schools in New Jersey when they were good at football. And when the college recruiters would come in, they'd have a tape measure and there'd be, they'd say, we don't want to see anyone that's not six feet tall, you know, as opposed to saying, I don't want to really get too deep into any kid who has poor ankle range of motion and who has poor shoulder range of motion. Uh, so those are things that I look at. I don't look at 40 time or vertical jump as anything other than maybe a potential guideline or a potential uh, uh, outstanding athlete. But other than that, I'm, I'm not aware of, and I don't believe in a lot of those. You know, some, you know, some really more strength-based uh, 
performers, you know, like uh, like an elite hammer thrower. Um, you know, there are things out there that that uh, you know you you have to throw it like seventy two meters uh, to be an elite hammer thrower, and you and, and no elite hammer thrower can't squat two hundred and twenty five kilos. You right. know, it's uh, there's certain things like that, but when you bring that into baseball, it's a little different. Well, I, basically, you know, Mark, I, not to, sorry to cut you off, but a hammer, there, there's a, it's a great point to bring up. A hammer thrower, that's called a closed skill. So he doesn't have any concerns about the environment, about the technique. It's the same thing every time. No one's going to hit him. He doesn't have to move aside from that specific technique. So you can make those kind of judgments for an athlete, a track and field, a time, a distance athlete. You know, there's a famous sports scientist by the name of Bondarchuk, who was a throwing coach in the old Soviet Union. And he, he was a scientist as well as a coach. And he said the best correlation to success in the throws uh, is who can throw the implement that's slightly heavier and slightly lighter than the competition implement, who can throw that the furthest. So squat didn't matter, vertical jump didn't matter, all the other lifts didn't matter. It was still the skill. Who was best at the skill with an implement slightly heavier and slightly lighter than what they threw in competition? But well, those were the, completely different. The ball things. thing came in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess maybe a transition to pitching now. So when you're talking about a closed skill like a hammer throw, when we're talking to these young kids – who are more throwers than they are pitchers. Throwing may be a closed skill because it's the same thing over and over where um, pitching is something different. C could you kind of bridge the gap between those two particular skills, throwing and pitching, based on what you're saying? Well, yeah, I think if you had a spectrum, you know, certain things are, I still would say pitching, uh, a pitcher has a more defined, it could be more closer to, a. it's still an open skill because they have to be able to react to things once the pitch is thrown, but it's still it's still more of a closed skill than say the shortstop or second baseman that they're moving, they're running, they're free. again there's a case of you're running in one plane and you're throwing and your body's moving in another plane. So you know there there is a difference there, and I think you have to throw before you can pitch just like you have to do certain fundamental things on a musical instrument before you can move up the chart, uh, move up the chain to the more complex things. But the other side of that is once you're in that pitching mode and you move up the ladder, you have to do things that are specific to what you're doing. And there's a, a fine line and you guys know better than me. I love the story that Bob Gibson used to go and, and shag and play third base in batting practice after he pitched certainly didn't hurt him. So there's there's a case of having a, a well-rounded experience is going to help you better at, at your skill, but you still have to work at that skill. You can't do things that are going to undermine your proficiency in that. I got a question Go for you. Mark. Uh, same thing like throwing and pitching to our, especially to our young audience or our velocity chasers out there. And, and we'll jump into what's the difference for them between a thrower and a pitcher. Well, a, a thrower is a guy that is probably more tied to effort. Um, and he's not tied to uh, uh, his delivery. He's not tied to proper rhythm and timing. 
his directions. Those are those are side things. He's more in, interested in power, uh, spin, you know, velocity. He, he's 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 it's it. The command element's not there because those other things aren't brought into the picture. Uh, for me, on a guy that's a thrower, a pitcher is a guy that's under control, kind of understands what his best effort level is to be able to maintain that command and maintain his delivery in a consistent way. If you listen to the World Series and you hear John Smoltz talk about repeating and how guys, if you repeat your delivery, that's how you get your hand to be in the same position on all pitches. Uh, to where hitters can't detect anything different. And that's why those guys that repeat and can get their hand at release in the, close to the same position, it makes it a lot more difficult on the hitters, regardless of how hard you throw. Yeah, you know, the, the, for me, the, the thrower is the guy who's just out there um, throwing, you know, just – there's no concern about delivery. He's trying to throw hard. He's trying to muscle up on his breaking ball. Everything is, 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 uh, and you know, those guys end up being in the bullpen. And then a lot of the pitchers end up as your starting pitchers who are trying to pitch. They, they create a good delivery. They know the importance of having a good delivery, they know the importance of making good pitches in the strike zone and commanding the baseball. And uh, they know the importance of sequencing pitches and they understand what a hitter's strength and weaknesses are. That That is becoming a pitcher as opposed to just someone who throws hard. Well, you know, we, we categorize as a pitching coach. Um, I base a lot of it on what I'm willing to give them the responsibility to do. You know, starting pitchers, you know, you're going to go through the lineup more than once. You, you're going to have to be able to command the ball well enough to take advantage of weakness and and uh, and, and past experiences. Whereas sometimes relievers, you know, his mentality is so tied to effort that you wouldn't want to give him responsibility more of the inning or so. Um, you know, most closers, you know, they kind of have they're more like a starter because you know, not only can they pitch in pressure, but they could probably be asked to pitch more than they do. Most teams have them pitch one inning. You saw Presley yesterday pitch an inning in two thirds to save the game. Well, that's because he has more. He has some elements of a starting pitcher. Yeah, I mean, he's got a, a, a quality four pitch mix that he can go to a lot of different pitches. He's really, really improved a lot over the years. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I've got I got one. I only have like one more question to myself. And, and we talked about this a little bit. Can you give us your view on art versus science in training? Yeah. And I, I want to just make a clarification when you were talking about I was thinking about skill acquisition and throwing before you pitch. So that was misunderstanding what you were getting at. And I would say I would agree with you guys real quick, not to divert too much, but you look at the old school guys, I always go back to Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, Jerry Kuzman, Jim Palmer, guys that were pitching that you can't, um, in my opinion, you couldn't teach kids to pitch like Seaver and Ryan, most of them, because they can't move as well as those guys did. Um, and this dovetails into Mark's question, if this was all a science, we could do that and take 
Seaver and Ryan and Kuzman and Palmer and some of these other guys that had, uh, like, I, I don't think there's such thing as perfect mechanics, but let's say ideal mechanics and have all these little clones. I think we can't do that and you can't necessarily replicate it. Science, you can replicate it. Uh, so it's really what we do. There are underpinnings of science. There are some things that are as close to laws as you can get to, like the law of specificity and the law of what gravity does to the body. Those are the two things you need to use to determine if a movement is sufficient for your training, for your endeavor. Uh, if it was all science, though, you could take an army of kids out there and create this great 12-man pitching staff of everyone who threw fantastically. Look, we're all individuals. So that's where the art comes in. You have to know that this kid could do X, this kid could do Y, and be able to constantly adjust to get to the point where they're they're at their peak or they're at least closer to their capability level than if you didn't have that ability to adjust. You know, I use the example all the time as, as a high school strength coach, you would have the six foot two, 240 pound kid uh, and the five foot nine, 140 pound kid doing the same program. So it's obviously not the program that's responsible to get those kids to perform on the field. Uh, the bigger kid could not even be as good as the little kid, but it's how you get them to perform. And that's where the art comes in. Everybody is different. And I think I started working with people individually, which has given me that um, way to look at everybody. I can quickly assess what people need to do and get them all to the same place, even though they might be coming from different starting points. That That's where the art comes in. I like it. Mark and Will, you, we, we've got, Sal, we've kept you for almost almost 50 minutes here, close to an hour. Will, you have, you have something you want to add? Yeah, I just, um, you know, we, we were talking about building arm strength and, and you know, I, I know you talked about the Russian scientists, which I've heard, and I think that dovetailed into uh, the weighted ball program that uh, a lot of kids use to build velocity. And I, and I think you had an opportunity to talk to Alan Jager Yep. Um, and Mark and I are big proponents of long toss and uh, for because I think long toss is natural throwing, creating a rhythm as as a while you're throwing. Um, all those things are so important and they're so much easier than than risking throwing a weighted ball and, and a, a light ball and flying open and all this other stuff. And you're like, you know, your, your arm's a muscle. The more you throw, you know, the stronger it's going to get. And that's how for years guys build arm strength was just by throwing and throwing properly. And then his band program is outstanding. And it's not loading muscle, it's loading flexible strength into the arm and, 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 and the flexible motion of throwing the ball properly. And, and uh, you know, not that I want to put the weighted ball people out of business, but I think a, a lot of our injuries are coming from weighted ball usage. Well, here, I had this conversation with Alan and in listening to his podcast on the network, what he is a proponent of, which is what you guys are a proponent of works. What the problem is, is that we've got this other garbage that's been injected into the system 
and it's being ignored is the cause. So people want to stop long toss instead of stopping the weight room. When you listen to Alan speak that, and what you just said, Will, those things that you need to do are being dampened, if not flat out destroyed by the effect of the weight room. And yet people want to take out the toss, not the weight room. That's a problem of perspective that needs to be changed. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Love it. Guys, we, we've had, I mean, Sal, great job today. Mark, will you any more parting shots for Sal? No, I just, this has been fantastic. I, I would love to have you on again. This has been maybe my favorite podcast we've done. Um, you know, it's an area that, that, you know, a lot of us don't know a lot about. A lot of parents don't know a lot about it. And even some coaches and street coaches, I think they would, they could value this message um, uh, moving forward to understand kind of, you know, what's important. Uh, we're not saying that, you know, strength isn't important. We're just, we're just saying that, that there are a lot of things you have to pay attention to to be a good player. Yeah. I, I agree. Thank you for – I would love to come back, uh, and thanks for the opportunity to be on your show. Yeah, guys, you did a great job. Sal, can you tell the audience how they can reach you, how they can find you? Sal, just so you guys know, I'll brag on you, Sal. Tremendous speaker. Uh, so if you have situations where you want parents, educated coaches, players, you can reach out to him. He does a phenomenal job. The training, I've sent players to him. I mean, just fantastic how he he's into their learning strategies. He doesn't. It's not a cookie-cutter approach, and he taps into the mental and the physical. Tell the audience how they can reach you, Sal, what they can reach you for. Okay, I'm on Twitter at, at Sal Marinello. Um, my Instagram uh, account, which I'm getting up and been pumping into uh, new info in and new content, is uh, Coach Sal's Playmakers. And you can get me at email at CoachSalM at ProtonMail.com. I have a website that I'm in the process of redoing, so that'll be something uh, that I'll have to add to the list uh, very shortly. Well, that was tremendous. And Mark and Will, you guys do a phenomenal job. The synergy between you two is amazing. And then how you're able to draw out the special knowledge our guests have is, is also tremendous. Sal, thanks. Did a great job today. This is episode 80 of Coaching Kernan Podcast Network, but in the ninth installment of A Day at the Yard, Common Spence Pitching with Wiley and Will, my two favorite pitching coaches of all time. So guys, thanks again. Have a great day. Have a great Thank day, you. guys. Thanks again, Sal. Thank you. Thank you.